Well, Keystone, good morning, and glad to have you worship with us online. We are counting down the days until we'll be able to see you face-to-face on July 12th. Uh, We're going to continue to be able to share our experiences uh, with those of you who will stay at home, Uh, and so we're grateful for your patience with us as we try to make sure that both our in-person and our online experiences are the best that they can possibly be. Uh, I'm going to just um, pray for us as we begin our worship service, but just a a quick note of encouragement. I've been hearing from you as you've described what your plans are for VBS. We know that this is not a traditional VBS, but a staycation Bible school. But it seems like there there are a lot of people who are gathering in groups, maybe like you're doing this morning for worship, but they're gathering in groups for staycation Bible school with their friends and neighbors and taking on the responsibility of sharing the good news of Jesus with their own kids uh, as well as kids in the neighborhood. And so I just wanted to commend you and say, I love that. I love that you're advancing the gospel where God has placed you. And so as we worship here this morning, would you join me in praying? Father, we turn our face to you this morning. We want to be reminded of things that we may have forgotten. And we want to be shown things that are true of you that we may not have seen clearly. And so, Lord, I pray that this worship service, both the songs that we sing as well as the sermon that we hear, that these words would not just be an exercise that we listen to in the car or at home, filling our head with knowledge but not changing our heart or changing our life. But, Lord, we ask that this kind of worship might end up transforming our soul, that it would eradicate places where uh, we have placed our trust in wrong things, and that you would replace that hope with something sturdy and firm, that we might be able to endure whatever comes our way, because we have a surpassing joy that we know in you. So help us to see that this morning, in Jesus' name. Well, good morning. We have a number of our folks from Keystone Church that are camping this weekend up north of Harrisburg and uh, hopefully the weather uh, holds for them uh, this weekend. We have a lot of folks in our church that like to camp, and if you're one of them, you know that one of the best things about camping is sitting around the campfire in the evening. Wind is calm, temperature's just right. You have a conversation with whoever's around the campfire, you're just relaxing and enjoying the evening. And if you have some grandchildren like we do when we camp, uh, you're making s'mores over that campfire as well. Well, it comes time to go to bed, though, you want to put that fire out before you uh, turn in for the night. And you might pour some water on it, but if you do that, it's going to really smoke. And so perhaps you're going to instead put some sand on it or some dirt. Now, if you've ever monitored a brush fire in the back of your house, you know that you keep a shovel handy. Throw some dirt on it if it gets, gets out of hand. Dirt is not flammable and dirt puts fire out. However, there is one kind of dirt that's not true for. It's called peat and it is um, near bogs, swamps, ponds, and it's accumulated over over years and years and decades of time, uh, um, organic matter that's things that are growing up and then they die and they wither and they fall off more plants grow up and they, their leaves and so forth fall off. And the matter that is accumulating in the 
above the ground is it's not decomposing fast enough and so it becomes thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. Now peat is actually used in some of the parts of the world even today yet as, as fuel. So you can buy it in swaths like turf. Uh, they have to remove the water because there's a huge water content in it, but as it's dried out and either um, sold as, as turf uh, sod packets or reduced to like little briquettes, um, it's, used, it's used for fire and burns really, really well. Some places, uh, Ireland still uses it, some of the rural parts, a lot in Finland. Uh, Russia used to use a lot even to power its power plants. Isn't that amazing? You have a kind of dirt that can put out fires and another kind that can actually make fire last and make it burn. I have a question this morning as we continue our conversation about suffering. Can suffering be raw material for worship? Can suffering be raw material for worship? And we, that just sounds very counterintuitive. We've talked before about how challenging suffering can be in our lives. It, uh, it can actually make people question God. It, it can make them, uh, prompt them to lose their faith or become bitter toward God. Let's wrestle with that this morning. And uh, we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 10 if you want to find that in your Bibles a while. Let me uh, use a definition for worship that I used last summer in the series on worship. Worship is applauding God for who He is and what He's done. We should say what He's done and what He's doing. Praises and thanksgiving that are sung, and that's what we often think of worship as. We sing our praises to God, but they also might be said in prayer. And they also are done. Um, Romans chapter 12 talks about our living a life that is pleasing to God being an act of worship. So really all of life for the believer can be and is and really should be uh, worship. Applauding God for who He is and what He's done. Praises and thanksgiving that are sung, said, and done. Now Tozer emphasizes this point, a statement he makes about how all of life is to be worshiped. He says, we are saved to worship God. That's why he saved us. We are saved to worship God. All that Christ has done for us in the past and all that he is doing now leads to this one end. Worship is the goal for the believer. Let me tell you a story about, and we'll come back to this a couple times this morning, about a husband and wife who are looking forward to their first child. They're so excited. They're talking about names. They're, they're contemplating what it's going to look like in the nursery as they uh, work on this room. And as the months go by and as, as Madison meets with her doctor, increasingly the doctor has some concerns. They're, they're, they're not sure what this little baby is going to be like or whether she's going to be healthy. And she gets some other doctors to consult with, and as the time for delivery gets closer, um, now several months away, they tell her this baby is going to die. We're not sure what's right and what's wrong about her, but we know she's going to die, and we would suggest you abort. Madison and her husband are believers, and they refuse to consider abortion. So the day comes when little Eden is delivered, Things don't go as well as they hoped, and so she had to have a C-section. 
And the little baby's given to mom and dad and they, they hold her, she's alive. They cuddle her, they stroke her forehead, they whisper in her ear, they tell her they love her. And about 45 minutes after birth, Eden dies. And daddy tells this story and it's gripping if you read it, what it was like in the aftermath to wrestle with what they had been through. Now my guess is that as a Christian, you would say, along with me, worship is possible in such a case. It's difficult, but it's possible. But could you ever imagine that that kind of heartache, or the kind of heartache that you're experiencing right now or have recently, that the heartache itself could actually become raw material, could actually become fuel for your worship? And that's the question we want to wrestle with today. Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to start reading at verse 32. The background of Hebrews is uh, we're not sure who wrote the book. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Mine happens to be Apollos. But it was probably written by a Jewish Christian to Jewish Christians, Christians who didn't come from pagan or Gentile backgrounds, but rather grew up in, Christ in uh, Jewish homes. They, they knew the sacrificial system. They knew what it was to take an, uh, an animal down to the temple and offer it as a sacrifice. They knew what it was to celebrate the feasts of Passover and Pentecost and the Day of Atonement and all the rest. They knew what it was like to have a high priest. They, they knew what it was like to read the law of Moses. And so this book was written to these uh, Jewish Christians, some of whom are flirting with going back to Judaism. For whatever reason, there's a, there's a, a looking back and a, an interest, a longing in going, going back, especially in chapters 6 and 10, this surfaces. And the writer is trying to warn them against that and remind them of what they have in Christ. And so we drop in at verse 32. What's interesting is he talks about the suffering that they've gone through in the past and it seems as if the suffering has let up a bit in these days. And so while they remain steadfast with Christ in days when it was really difficult, now when things are getting better, now it seems like they're open to going back to Judaism. Verse 32. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule, were beaten, and sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. And then, and then you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one, Jesus, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. Let's ask God for his help before we continue. 
Father, we, um, we represent the, um, all of humanity around the world when we confess that we struggle with um, challenges, troubles, tribulations, difficulties, sufferings in our life, big and small. And we probably represent all of humanity when we say that in these times of difficulty, if we believe in a God of some sort, we are almost in, instinctively inclined to look up and hold our hands out in despair as if to say, huh? Or why? Or what's going on? And we live in a world fraught with these kinds of things. We know because we live in a world that has been cursed because of our rebellion. And yet we also know that you, the king of heaven and earth, are in charge. And you have a never-ending love, an everlasting love for those who are your own. And because of that, you also work in our sufferings for a multitude of purposes. And so it's not simply this cosmic accident that brings misery upon us, but there's some very purposeful things going on. And I pray that the Holy Spirit this morning would reveal to us your revelation and something about this interplay, is it even possible between suffering and worship? And that our hearts would be open, uh, our hands would be out to receive from your good hands in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking first of all at verse 32, Hebrews chapter 10, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Now, if you have a more literal translation of the Bible, it doesn't even mention Christ. It will say something like, remember back when you were first enlightened. But the NLT has gotten it right. That is exactly what the writer means. He's talking about back when you first heard about Christ, first came to Christ in the very early days of your faith. Remember back in those early days when you learn about Christ, in other words, your faith, it's all, it is all about Christ. That's the thing I want you to get from this sentence. Faith is all about Jesus Christ. And so let me ask you, what would you say your faith is in? And the reason I ask that is because I have been had countless conversations over the years with people suffering who are bewildered that they're suffering. In other words, their perception is that as a follower of Jesus, they're not going to have to endure something like they're going through at this time. So again, the question is, what's your faith in? Is it Christ or is it in comfort or safety or peace or prosperity? All the things that bring us, in the natural realm, happiness as a human being. Is it Christ or is it some kind of comfort? 
Now, probably all of us have seen a Christmas tree at one time or another, maybe it's, maybe it's been in our home, that's barely recognizable as a tree. It has so many ornaments on it. It has so much tinsel on it. I don't know if this is done anymore, but when we were younger, there was artificial snow that you could spray on the tree. There's so many things on the tree that you're not sure there's a tree there. You, you, you can't see what all of these things are hanging on. And, and I've said this before, is we are influenced as believers in Jesus Christ in the 21st century, no matter what church we're a part of, we are influenced by some of the mindset that has come out of the non-biblical, aberrant faith that we call prosperity gospel or the, the prosperity theology. The idea that as children of the king, we are princes and princesses, and therefore we have the kinds of life of ease that a prince or princess would have. Things go our way. People get out of our way. Um, money and wealth is ours to enjoy. We have the finest physicians in the land. And the problem with all of this is whether that's a core doctrine of a Christian or whether it's simply uh, riding on the waves of Christian, whether it's blog posts or books or comments other Christians make, we are subtly influenced by all of that and tend to stumble when it comes to great difficulty. And you're not a substandard or abnormal um, Christian if you wrestle with that. We are, we are the products of our environment and our culture and the kind of Christianity uh, uh, loose today. The point of talking about the Christmas tree is that Christ is really the tree that we can uh, so decorate that we forget that he is the sole object of our faith. He is, he is where our faith is grounded, rooted, and from whence it grows. And the scripture writers, even this writer in this letter, brings us back to that again and again and again. Let me take you over to chapter 12 of Hebrews, beginning of verse 1. So all of chapter 11, and really cha uh, chapters 10, 11, and 12 are kind of uh, a package where they're focusing on running this race faithfully with Christ. In chapter 11, we've, been, we've heard lots of names of people down through the history of faith who've served God and many of whom have suffered great, great difficulties, all of whom did not receive the fullness of the promises that God had made to them in their life. And so after all of this biological review, a biographical review, chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. So he's talking about running a race just called life and making it through that, uh, making it through that race successfully. He wants to get rid of everything that might be an impediment to us, and he starts with sin, uh, obviously the greatest threat to us running the race. Let us run with, race, with endurance the race that God has set before us. How do we do it? How's, how are you going to successfully run this race? Now, if you are a runner, 
for a high school or something, you're going to pay attention to the shoes you run in, uh, to the weight that you don't have on, you're gonna pay attention to training and so forth. The writer brings us back to the most important thing for you and I as a runner in this race of life. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus. The author says this twice in this book. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. In other words, he's not just the one who gives us our faith. He's the one who carries us through in our faith, carries our faith through, perfects it, uh, brings it to maturity, and ultimately carries it through. And now the writer is looking back at the Savior's own life of challenge and difficulty. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now, <clears throat> now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. In other words, he put up with something in this season in deference to and in expectation of what he's going to enjoy in the next season. Now he is seated at the place of honor beside God's throne. And so think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet been martyred. You've not yet given your lives in the struggle against sin. So the Christian's faith is in Christ and we must repeatedly have our, our eyes and our attention drawn back to looking at Christ. And that's especially true when we are going through the throes of suffering. So that's my first point, a Christian's faith is in Christ. Here's the second one. A Christian's faith is grounded by Christ's promise, promises about, and if I just stop there and put a blank after it, I wonder what you would fill in. A Christian's faith is grounded by Christ's promises about. What would you complete that sentence with? I completed it with this word, the future. A Christian's faith is grounded by Christ's promises about the future. Let's go back again to chapter 10. Start at verse 34. You suffered along with those who were thrown in jail, and when, you, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. The text actually says when your property was confiscated. I think that means especially real estate, not just your possessions. Now, I have a half-acre lot that my house sits on. It's all mine. It's all paid for. I can do with it what I want. If we want to paint a room a different color, we can. If we want to put in a patio, we can. If we want to saw a tree down like we did a couple of weeks ago, we can. Or if we want to plant another one like we did a couple of years ago, we can. It's all mine. I can't imagine somebody coming to my door and saying, um, you have to get out. This house, this property is now all mine. And I say, well, you can't do that. It's mine. You have, you have to leave. No, it's mine. Well, I'll call the police. Well, you can do that, but we already had it approved by the police. In fact, it's been approved by a court that this property is no longer yours because, after all, you're a Christian. Christians don't have rights. I, I, and not only does, does the writer say that the people he's talking to, some of them, actually put up with that, but you accepted it with joy. Why? And we're gonna see again and again in the verses that follow, he's pointing them to the future. 
Look ahead, look to the future. You knew that there were better things waiting for you that will last forever, future. So don't throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you, again, future. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will and then you will receive, future, all that he has promised. For in just a little while, future, the coming one, that's Jesus, will come, future, not delay, and my righteous ones will live by faith, but I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we're not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. In other words, we're saved now because of the work of Christ, but we don't receive the fullness of our salvation until we go to heaven, until we are glorified. We will be saved. A Christian's faith is grounded by Christ's promises about the future. Now, we want to make a clarification at this point. When I was a kid growing up, I remember adults talking about, disparagingly about other Christians that they said were so heavenly-minded they weren't any earthly good. And the idea was that, that they're thinking so much about heaven, they don't care about what's going on here below, they don't, they don't care about their neighbor, they don't care about their needs, they don't care about justice. Uh, they don't, they just care about their future in heaven. And that's certainly not the call for the New Testament Christian. I mean, even the statement uh, that Paul makes, he says, we, we want to remember the poor. And then he qualifies that, especially the household of faith. In other words, the poor people who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But he doesn't say we exclude the poor who are outside the circle of faith. And so, and so there's, there's no sense here in which we just wash our hands of the, of the current day and all of the stuff that happens around us and all the people around us and their needs and so forth. However, the vast majority of the, of the promises of Christ are rooted in the future, not all. So certainly we, we have the forgiveness of our sins today because of Christ. And that forgiveness has reconciled us today with the Father because of Christ. And we have a moment-by-moment moment divine power living within us, that is the Holy Spirit, because of Christ. And Christ has promised never to leave us and never forsake us. These are, these are promises for today. But most promises that, that are given to the Christian that are given to our faith rest on things that are going to arrive in the future, in the next life. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he will reveal to us later. In other words, the disappointment, the devastation, the, uh, the sadness, the sorrow, the grief that we are experiencing now, as bad as it is, can't even be compared to how good the future will be. And that's all going to be revealed to, to us later. Guaranteed, uh, we have a guaranteed home awaiting for us in a restored Eden where we're face to face with the Savior and face to face with the saints forever. All, all the curse has been undone. The, there's no more savagery in the animal kingdom. There's no more hatred, there's no more quarrels, there's no more violence, there's no more disease, there's no more death. But this is all yet 
future. Christian's faith is in Christ. A Christian's faith is grounded by Christ's promises about the future. Now those are my two main points. And it's at this point you might say, well, that's great, but you still haven't told us how our suffering can function as raw material for worship. How can it be like this peat that gets thrown into the fireplace and burns as if, as if it were wood or LP gas? Let me say three things about that, and this is a progression. So jot these down. One, suffering reveals the heart. Suffering reveals the heart, and I'll say that suffering reveals the heart like nothing else, and that comes from both reading the scriptures and listening to people for a lot of years. Suffering reveals the heart. Specifically, what I mean, it reveals what the object of our faith is. Back to point one. Is it Christ, or is it some kind of comfort? And comfort is simply a a catch-all word for all the life that we would like, the way we would want it to go. Is Christ the object of our faith, or is it in some fashion um, comfort? If life goes the way I want it to go, then my Christianity is secure. If life goes the way I want it to go, then my hope is in Jesus. No. If life goes the way you want it to go, then your hope is in your life going the way you want it to go. So here's two different examples. Let's talk about King Hezekiah. Um, Isaiah came to him and he told him, I have a word for you from the Lord. You're going to get, uh, the sickness that you have is going to take you. Get your affairs in order, you're gonna die from this. And Hezekiah's response to that was to go to the Lord in prayer and and kind of call God out. And it, he called him out this way. I have been faithful to you. I've done what you wanted. I've been a good follower of you. And this is how you treat me? Now God in his mercy relented and gave him another 15 years of life. But do you see what Hezekiah was building his argument on? Not his faith in God but his faith in himself. I've been this good, and surely you should be therefore that good to me. There's, there's no worship of God here. There's really, the argument could be made, he's worshiping himself. Now contrast that with Job. Job chapter one, everything goes south after God gives Satan permission to test Job. And his animals are all either stolen or killed. And of course, animals were the way you figured wealth in those days. All of his herdsmen, his employees, his servants, the ones that took care of those animals, they're all, again, either run off or they are killed. There's a storm that comes in, probably a sandstorm, came in off the desert. It was so violent that it destroyed a house in which all of Job's adult children were staying, and every one of them is killed. Now you stack up a, a collection of horrors that all literally happened within a day, and you hear about them, and you try to 
in your mind construct your reaction. My guess is it wouldn't go like this. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. And then he shaved his head and fell to the ground to worship. He's not denying the horror. He shaved his head, tore his robe in grief. But he fell to the ground to worship. And he said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. Now, if we would have Job in a counseling room today, we would declare him dysfunctional. We would say, you're denying your grief. We would call him all kinds of names that fit in the DSM-5. And yet the Bible writer writes about him differently. Praise the name of the Lord. Suffering reveals the heart. It revealed Hezekiah's heart. It revealed Job's heart. And it reveals your heart. And I know it reveals mine. Secondly, again, this is a progression. A revealed heart can lead to repentance. A revealed heart can lead to repentance. In other words, once I see that my faith might not be resting on Christ, not might not be anchored on Christ, might not the object of my faith might not be Christ, then this revealed heart can lead to repentance and repentance can return Christ to his rightful place. A revealed heart can lead to repentance which can return Christ to his rightful place. Now, one of the most valuable gems in all the planet is a diamond. It's what most every man buys for his fiance to express his love and his commitment to her. Now diamonds are hard to come by. There are not a lot of them. In fact, laboratories now create diamonds in the laboratory and they can make beautiful ones. But if you get a diamond out of the ground, one that nature made, it it came at the expense of a great deal of pressure and a great deal of heat. To make a diamond, uh, a lot of time too, let's add that in, many, many, many years. But to make a diamond requires somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,000 to 2,200 degrees Fahrenheit heat. And it requires pressure of 725,000 pounds per square inch. 725,000 pounds per square inch. And out of that, you get something remarkable. Someone has said, no pressure, no diamonds. No pressure, no diamonds. So the revealed heart, painful though it is, can lead us to repentance. And now we're on the road to where our faith needs to be. Maybe where it used to be, but it wasn't for a while. Maybe it never was. But we can bring it to where it needs to be that, that we return Christ to his rightful place as the object of our faith. And now, <clears throat> lastly, repentance dismantles misplaced hopes that Christ never promised, 
promised. Repentance dismantles misplaced hopes that Christ never promised. Back to the kinds of things that the prosperity gospel is promoting all the time. You should be wealthy. Uh, you should never have an ache or a pain. You shouldn't have to go on medicine. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't. Repentance dismantles misplaced hopes that Christ never promised with the ones that he has promised. With the hopes that he has promised. And brothers and sisters, the greatest, most glorious hope is not just in heaven, not just in these glorious future promises, but in the promise that the one who is going to get us from here to there is not ourselves, but is him. The one who gets me through suffering and from suffering to his glorious sanctuary one day is Jesus, not me. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will carry it to the day of completion, Christ Jesus. Uh, the little tiny book of Jude, right before Revelation, has a wonderful verse. Little one chapter book says this in verse 24. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling away. In other words, the very kind of thing the writer of Hebrews is addressing to his readers. He's, God is able to keep you from falling away and will, will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. And we couldn't speak about this wonderful promise of Jesus taking us all the way home without looking at Romans 8 again, beginning of verse 31. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Now don't fill in everything there with everything you want, but rather with everything that you need. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or, or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And you see there, there's a, there's a huge scope of trouble that goes well beyond the persecution that we sometimes think, oh, that's all the suffering that God's talking about in the New Testament. And that, you know, so we, we're not experiencing in the States here very much persecution, but all these other bad things happen to us. No, he's, he's got the whole gamut of suffering listed here. Verse 36, as the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above 
or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Jesus that takes us all the way home. Now going back to Eden's parents, grieving the death of their little girl. And her daddy writes, as he looked back on what happened to King David when he lost his child, you know, he had prayed for a week, he had fasted for a week, uh, he had not put on perfume, he had shaved, he had showered. And then when he finds out that his child dies, all of that changed. He got up, he got dressed, he got cleaned up, he took food again. And this daddy looked back at David's example and he made this comment, it seemed like an unobtainable goal to end mourning and simply worship God. And as I'm reading this, I wanted to scream, that's not what you need to do. It's not one or the other. It's not either grieve or worship God. Remember Job? He grieved, he tore his robe, he shaved his head in grief. And then he got on the ground and he worshiped God. The Bible says that we Christians do grieve. Just We grieve. We, we grieve like everybody around us, but not like everyone around us. We grieve as those who have this hope, the hopes that Christ has promised us. We worship God even as we mourn. But make no mistake about it. The opportunities exist in the midst of your suffering. If you will let suffering do its God-ordained and God-sent work in your life, that it will restore your faith if it needs restored. It will, it will re-establish the proper ob object of your faith and the proper foundation of your faith if that's what's needed. And your hope will now rest where it needs to rest in all of the other winds that come and go, that blow to and fro, will not deter, deter you, will not unseat you, because you are standing on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ, the only foundation for a Christian's faith. Oswald Chambers made this claim, and maybe this will sum up this whole sermon. The saint never knows the joy of the Lord in spite of tribulation, but because of it. Just like those brothers and sisters in Hebrews who had their property confiscated and they were still filled with joy. It's because the, their property was not the foundation, not the object of their faith. The saint never knows the joy of the Lord in spite of tribulation, but because of it. Faith gets stripped down. It becomes pristine again, unadorned by all the ornaments and all of the junk that hang over and hide Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for um, the difficulties that come our way, that become your pruning shears to strip away all of the junk that has come to, in some cases, define our faith but certainly in other cases to, to become the, the grounds of our faith, the foundation of our faith, even the object of our faith. And how purifying and how restorative 
suffering can be. I wanna pray for brothers and sisters who are going through the, the fire right now. May they find the fire of suffering becomes the fire of their worship to some extent this day. And may it have a purifying effect on their faith, a, a restorative effect on their faith, and a, a renewed grounding of their faith that will carry them through the rest of this race that they run for your glory, for their good, and for the proclamation of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so thanks for worshiping with us. There are five different ways that you can interact with us uh, moving forward. The first is if you have a prayer request, there's a little button, live prayer. If you click that, somebody would love to be able to hear your prayer request and pray for you in real time. If you have needs during any of this crisis, as we start to go back to work, please reach out to us. Let us know. It is difficult to care for the needs of the body when the body parts are scattered all over the place. And one of the ways that we want to let the parts know who can help, that there are needs that need helping, is for you to go to keystonechurch.org compassion. And there, either fill out the survey for, I need help, or fill out the survey that says, I want to help. The third thing that you can do is go to keystonechurch.org slash give and set up either a one-time or a reoccurring gift. For those of you who've continued to give faithfully, uh, we thank God for you and your generosity uh, and want to see uh, God continue to meet our needs moving forward into a new fiscal year, um, trusting that he's going to supply us with everything that we need for life and ministry. The fourth thing, there are questions at the end of the sermon notes for you to continue to allow the Spirit of God to interact with your soul uh, and the sermon. And one of the things that pastors are actually doing each week is shooting a, a short little video uh, where we ask the question, how's the sermon continuing to impact you from Sunday? Uh, you can go to our YouTube page. Um, and there's a, be a link either in the weekly email uh, or on our website so you can see how God is at least working on us as pastors. But we'd love to hear from you as well. How are the sermons hitting you? And you can ask any questions either in the comments section below uh, or sending us an email. The fifth and final one, as we prepare for reopening, there are some volunteer needs that we are in dire need of. We want to make sure that when we open, we do so in meaningful and responsible ways for both those who are in person and online. And our new online uh, option will be a true live stream, which means we're going to need three different more uh, texts. We typically have audio texts and video texts and lighting texts, but now we're going to need uh, a camera operator or operators. We're going to need video mixers and video or audio mixers and video directors. And so if you are interested in helping us to advance the gospel, not just here in person, uh, but throughout all of the internet, uh, we'd love to be able to have that conversation with you, uh, provide all the training that you might need so you can jump in uh, and serve the Lord in this way. We're looking forward to seeing you uh, in person in a few weeks uh, and just like this in another week.